Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our prayer that uh, we would not only understand it, but joyfully live it out. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We come to another sermon that deals with uh, politics. I had a, uh, uh, a friend uh, ask me why it is that I've been preaching in the last year so much on this uh, subject. And actually, I have been. I took account of the different sermons uh, that I have done over the past, uh, what is it, a couple years in First Samuel and in Second Samuel, and uh, came to 15 out of 66 sermons, or a little over 22%. So there's been a lot of preaching on politics that we've done over the uh, past uh, few chapters uh, of First and Second Samuel. And providentially, it's actually worked out quite well because this has been uh, a, a season where people are thinking about politics and wanting to have uh, guidance uh, on that topic. But I think the simplest answer to that question is that I really don't want to skip over, like so many people do, to skip over any passages related to the life of, uh, of David uh, I really want to have the balance in preaching that the Scripture has. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Michael Mil uh, Milton, uh, who is the chancellor of a Reformed Theological Seminary, and he wrote an article recently complaining that pastors have actually gone in the opposite uh, direction. Uh, they're refusing to preach the whole counsel of God or to apply the Bible to politics and as a result, he says that they are not tackling the biggest idols in our culture. In fact, the people in their congregations are very willingly and peacefully embracing the idols of their culture. And part of it comes from a misunderstanding of the comprehensiveness of the gospel. I read another article recently where the guy was asking, does the gospel that you are preaching, can it be derived from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's a great question because there's a lot of pastors who cannot derive the Gospels that they are preaching from the Gospels. And uh, one of my friends said, yeah, but that's because the, the, the Gospel that's portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the Gospel for the Jews. It's the Gospel of the Kingdom, but the Gospel that Paul preaches is the Gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, the problem with that theory, and he says that began to be preached partway through the book of Acts. Well, the problem with that theory is that Paul claims to be preaching the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if your gospel that you think Paul is preaching contradicts the gospel of Jesus, then you don't understand Paul at all. And it was a very eye-opening article, and it showed the problem with modern pietism. The gospel of Jesus 
that you derive from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is applied to all of life. It's a good news to all of life. And uh, when we don't see that, we're robbing ourselves and we're missing out on many applications. Now, let me just illustrate that. I did a fun experiment on Tuesday, got a red-letter edition of the Bible, and I uh, counted the number of pages in Matthew uh, which had red on it. In other words, these are the speeches that Jesus gave while he was here on earth. Now, we know he gave us the black letters too, right? Uh, But we're just going to play this game for a bit. So I counted those uh, red-letter pages up. There's 30 of them. And then I looked at the pages that didn't just tangentially deal with politics, but where Jesus directly gave guidance on politics, critiqued the corrupt political system of that time, or in some way talked about politics. And I came up with 20 of those 30 pages. I was very surprised by the results. That's 66%. So if people tell you, you know, Pastor Kaiser really seems to be preaching too much on politics, you can say, oh, no, he's not preaching nearly as much as Jesus did. (laughs) Only 22%, not 66%. So he's got a lot of catching up to do. But uh, actually, we're not going to do catching up. We're just going to stick to what the text uh, uh, says and not try to skip over any of them. Well, in this passage, we have a summary statement of the election and the reign of David. And it's one of many passages in the Old Testament that was a paradigm for people like John Witherstrom, uh, a, 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 a pastor who signed the Declaration of Independence, who mentored most of the people who uh, wrote the Constitution. And they looked to passages like this, and they modeled the American Republic after the Hebrew Republic. And if you read our second president, John Adams, they did so very self-consciously. It was uh, a rejection of Rome and Greece, and it was a looking to the Old Testament. If you want a major treatise on this, you can read E.C. Wine's book, uh, The Hebrew Republic. Actually, for that matter, you could read his other book, uh, Commentaries on the Laws of the Hebrews. You read those two books, and you'll see it's a straightforward exegesis of the Old Testament that was the foundation for our republic with a few odd twists that were thrown in there that I don't agree with. But anyway, uh, it was mainly from the Old Testament. So let's, let's dive into this passage. Verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke. Now there is a parallel passage to what's going on here in First Chronicles 11.1. 1. And it says, Then all Israel gathered to David. Now the key phrases are all the tribes of Israel came and all Israel gathered. Now this has posed an enormous problem for some commentators who have said it's just physically impossible for 80 million people to show up at Hebron and vote David uh, into office. And what they're failing to see is what the older Reformed commentators saw is that this is representational. This is a covenantal Uh, a statement here. I want you to notice in verse 3 that it clarifies what verse 1 means when it says all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. But Reformed writers have said, don't just look at verse 3 and then ignore verse 1. Verse 3 is interpreting verse 1. You got to take both of them together uh, and, and Uh, the the wording of verse 1 is extremely important. When the elders come, they are representing the people, so it's appropriate to speak of them as the people 
or as all Israel. And you'll find this kind of language all through the Old Testament. It was a representational form of government. And you'll find this in the Constitution of the United States of America as well. We the people of the United States of America. You'll find that phrase twice in the Constitution. Now, how could 55 delegates dare to say that they are we the people, right? How could they do that? Well, they could do it because they represented the votes of the state's constitutions, and the state constitutions represented the votes of the counties, and the counties represented the votes of all the male heads of households, 20 years old and above. James Wilson, one of the members of the United States Constitutional Convention, said, In large states, the people cannot assemble together. As they cannot therefore act by themselves, they must act by their representatives. So that's what we mean by representational government. And the only way to reconcile verse 1, verse 3, and 1 Chronicles 11 is to see it as representational governments. It's no different than what's going on here in America. Well, what should be going on here in America. Now, here is a bird's-eye view of how it worked out in the Bible. 2 Samuel 16, verse 18, says that the king must be, quote, whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel should choose. Now, those th- ands those separate three groups of people. It's the Lord... Second, this people, that would be the representatives. And third, all the men of Israel, that would be the heads of households voting. So that, in a nutshell, is representational government. Now, let me dig a little bit deeper on this just so you can see how it works out. In 1 Samuel 8, when it says, quote, The people said to Samuel, No, but we will have a king over us. Who were the people? It was representatives who had voted to oust Samuel's corrupt sons uh, from ruling. They had just engaged in an impeachment process. Now, the passage also indicates that the people themselves generally had become very upset and discontented with the the rule of Samuel's sons, but they sent their representatives uh, to speak about their concerns at the national level, and the national delegates were clearly representing the people. But once a decision had been made for a new king, Samuel said to these representatives of Israel, Every man go to his city. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 22, you can see that, that story. Now, why would they need to go back to their city? They're the representatives. They're already there. Why can't they vote right then and there for, 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 for uh, Saul? I mean, they're present. Let's just get it dealt with. Why go back to their cities? Well, they go back to their cities... Because they're now going to start the election process all over again because a new candidate has been presented and the people hadn't voted on him. The representatives couldn't act independently of the people. And it was at the city level that the electoral process began. And as I mentioned, every male 20 years old and above was, uh, had the right to vote uh, in, in Israel. I've got a booklet on that. You can look at all of the, uh, the scriptures. I won't get into them right now. But when the actual vote took place to make Saul king, it was done, quote, by all the men in the cities throughout the nation. That's 1 Samuel 11, 11 through 15. And then it was taken to the tribal conventions, 2 Samuel 19. It's also reflected in Numbers 1, Joshua 24, etc. And then the representatives of those tribal conventions chose the king. And that's 2 Samuel 5, verse 3. And you can also see it in chapter... 
uh, 3, verse 17, 19, verse 11, 1 Chronicles 11, verse 3. So it's clear that just like our electoral college system, it wasn't an absolute majority vote of the nation. Uh, They didn't just count their votes across the nation like the Democrats uh, want us to. Uh, That would play into the hands of the power brokers. It would be so easy to cheat. And it's even hinted at right here in the text. When you compare 1 Chronicles 11 with this text, 1 Chronicles 11 says, All Israel, verse 1 here says, All the tribes. Each tribe had delegates who voted. And so 2 Samuel 19, verse 43 The representatives of ten tribes said, we have ten shares in the king. So it's not an absolute majority vote uh, like uh, Al Gore had, but it is a vote of the delegates from each of the states like Bush Jr. had. So really, the, the, the kind of system and the checks and balances we have in America is very, very similar to what you see in the Scripture. It was not a parliamentary system like we see in Canada. It had more checks and balances. Representation has always been critically important in American politics. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it is fast eroding, very fast eroding, and we seem to be run by an oligarchy that pulls the strings behind the conventions. And that's one of the reasons why the recent rules changes and the Republican National Convention garnered so much negative news. The Liberty Caucus, as Steve had mentioned on Friday, has so much influence that it has forced the power players to come out of the darkness and to cheat and to do it so openly, but they didn't have a choice. And the radicals in the Democratic uh, uh, Convention have uh, been doing the same thing with the Democrats. Uh, You know, they said that the two-thirds had it. Uh, They didn't even remotely have uh, two-thirds in the Democratic Convention. But back to the Republicans. If Rule 16 had passed, It would be like telling these thousands of delegates, these elders who had come uh, to to Hebron, that they really uh, could only vote if David picked them uh, through a delegate selection uh, process. Uh, That would destroy representational government. It would no longer be all Israel, all the tribes, or the people who picked it. It would be David picking David through delegate selection process process. And if Rule 16 had passed as Sununu wanted, it would have completely removed true representation within the Republican Party. Now, thankfully, Texas, yay Texas, uh, you know, created such a stink that they backed down on that. But here's the point. Rule 12 is still in place. Rule 12 says they can change the rules anytime they want in between conventions. So technically, they could put Rule 16, they maybe won't do it, but they could put Rule 16 back in next week if they wanted to do it. Uh, And so it's a top-down approach, and this verse speaks of a bottom-up approach. The whole of Israel was involved in the choice. That's the only way you can read verse 1. The whole of Israel was involved in the choice, and verse 3 indicates they did so by sending delegates to Hebron to finally do what they had been asking to do for a long time. Let me quickly remind you of that. Remember that Abner had been playing power politics, had circumvented the representational process. Like the Republicans and actually like the Democrats in their recent convention, the people didn't get their way. And, and hopefully you'll find this encouraging that corruption in politics is not something new. It's as old as mankind. 
And it's not something we can just helplessly say, ah, there's nothing we can do about it. They successfully resisted it back then. It can be resisted today as well. Uh, Our country needs the gospel of Jesus Christ just like ancient Israel does. It's not going to help to just replace one person with another person with another person with another person. Human nature is depraved, and it's going to corrupt any process that is out there. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Anyway, take a look at chapter 3, verses 17 through 18 again. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past, and we saw that that was the last seven and a half years, in time past, You were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. Now, Abner knew what God wanted. He knew it all through those seven and a half years, but he was circumventing God's representational process and in the, in the, in the pr- uh, process of doing that, he was pretending to be serving the people. He was pretending to be serving Ishbosheth. The scripture is as relevant today as it was back then. Anyway, we saw that the elders, who were the local representatives of the people, they were pretty upset that they were not getting David. They were not getting their way with Abner. And the pressures that they exerted finally hit their mark, and Abner caved in. He eventually had to. He had no choice. And that's why I tell people, don't give up simply because some people were playing dirty power politics. Don't give up at all. Uh, The people can eventually get their delegates heard, but we can't do a cover-up job for them. And I, for one, am not going to reward them by playing the game and voting for their candidate, Romney. If you want to do it, uh, that's your prerogative. In fact, I can give you some scriptural evidences as to why you can do that. But I hope you'll listen to me on this sermon as to what the options are before us. So the various terms used, people, the people, Israel, the tribe, show a check and balance very similar to the electoral college system, very similar to the primary uh, uh, system. And so point A is that David was chosen by representatives of the people. Point B, David's kingship was based on citizenship. He had to be a fellow Jew. Uh, Verse 1 continues, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Now commentators point out that that phrase, we are your bone and your flesh, did not mean literally that David was from their tribe, Um, It's a a phrase that speaks to two things, citizenship and exclusive loyalty. Actually, it's a phrase almost very similar to what Adam said about Eve. Speaking of loyalty, uh, citizenship and exclusive loyalty. Now, David had shown himself loyal to Israel alone because he was a citizen of Israel alone. And in doing this, they were just following the law of God, which was so clearly laid out. For example, Deuteronomy 17, 15 and 20 stipulated that all kings of Israel had to be citizens of Israel and could not have dual citizenship. They could not have a dual loyalty. Now, that should be so obvious that it shouldn't even need to be stated. A ruler of America should be an American citizen. A ruler of Britain should be a British citizen, but it's not always worked out that way. There have been times where foreign kings, foreign uh, queens have come to Britain and have ruled either in Scotland or in in England and because they had divided loyalties their first interests were not necessarily in the best interests of that nation 
Well, I would say the same about President Obama. While there has been debate about whether he meets the constitutional requirements to be a president, I think that the evidence is conclusive against it. Now, you're free to dismiss my application of this particular point to, to Obama, but hopefully you can at least appreciate the wisdom of the law that is seeking to protect against the leader of the military having dual allegiances, dual loyalties. Now, let's consider the case for Obama. And by the way, if we don't apply things to real-life situations that we're living in, we're not preaching. Preaching is the application of the Word. Teaching, yeah, you can just see what happened back then, but preaching is the application of the Word for today. So let's apply it. Was Obama born on U.S. soil? I'm willing to concede that point, actually, just for the sake of argument. It's been hotly debated back and forth. But I do find it interesting that Obama's records are sealed. His first executive order in office was Executive Order Number 13489, which prohibits the release of any of Obama's personal or public records um, during the presidency or after the presidency. And by the way, it's a violation of the Freedom of um, Information Act. But beyond that technicality, why would he do something like that? Why wouldn't he just present the evidence? People are just saying, show us your birth certificate. Why has he spent millions of dollars fighting this request for his birth certificate? Uh, when the birth certificate that his supporters placed on the web was exposed as a forgery, and I don't know if you realize that, it was clearly exposed as a forgery, they admitted it publicly, but they said, no, he really does have a birth certificate, so why does he not show it uh, to others, the real thing? The law of God demanded that the king be able to prove that he was a citizen. It did not demand that the citizens prove that he wasn't. Okay, the burden of proof rests upon the candidate. And our Constitution is the same. It demands that presidents be natural-born citizens. Now, there were people born at the time uh, of the Constitution, had been born prior to that. They were citizens, but they were not qualified to be president, if you look at the discussions there, because they were not natural-born uh, citizens. And there is a difference. The, the birther issue is not a legalistic, narrow, small-minded, conspiratorial uh, issue. It's simply a defense of constitutionalism. By the way, it was started by the, a Democrat. It is a bipartisan issue. Uh, we either live by a constitution or we do not. Second question, were both of Obama's parents U.S. citizens? And the answer is clearly no. Now, that's actually not debated, obviously. They just scoff at the necessity of it. In terms of original intent, this appears to have been a qualification. John Jay, founding father and uh, first chief justice of the Supreme Court, he said the reason for this requirement is that allegiance needed to be to America alone. And it makes sense. Some of the court cases that I have uh, looked at have pointed out that since a parent confers citizenship upon his children, a child could have dual allegiances if both parents were not citizens. Now, it's true that the Indiana Court of Appeals has said this, quote, that persons born within the borders of the United States are natural-born citizens for Article II, Section 1 purposes, regardless of the citizenship of their parents, unquote. But like other liberal decisions, it has completely ignored the original intent, and it is absolutely false. That stupid court case would say 
that a child, you know, you could have two illegal aliens coming into the States for a month. During that month, a child is born there, and uh, then they leave. That child grows up. He's an American citizen. They, that, according to that court case, that child who has not even grown up in the States, he spent one month in the States, could be president of the United States. That is clearly in violation of the original intent uh, of this language. Uh, the um, Constitution requires he be a natural-born citizen, and a natural-born citizen was one who was both jus soli and jus sanguinis. Uh, and you can study the meaning of those two terms yourselves. Now, are we being legalistic? And I would say no. The Constitution put a higher standard upon presidents than it did upon legislators. Legislators just had to be citizens. That's all that's required. A president who is the commander-in-chief of the army had to have something beyond that. And here is the definition that Emmerich de Vattel gave in 1758 in his book, The Law of Nations. He distinguished citizens from natural citizens, and he said, quote, Natural citizens are those born in the country of parents who are citizens. So we've got to look at original intent, and we've got to get the meaning of the term from the discussions going on when the Constitution was written. By the way, that was pretty close to when the Constitution was written, 1758. Now, some people argue that the 14th Amendment changed all of that, and I'm not going to get into all of the complicated arguments, pro and con, did it change that? You can just slice through all the rhetoric and say, let's just assume you're true. Let's slice through the rhetoric and let's look at what laws were in place after the 14th Amendment at the time that Obama was born. Well, if you look at those laws, the laws in force when Obama was born required that the mother have lived in the United States for 14 consecutive years, the last five of which were after her age of 14. Well, that disqualifies Obama as well because she was 18 when he was, when he was born. And so the laws in force at the time did not consider him to be a natural-born citizen. I think that's quite clear. Fourth, and this will be our last point, <clears throat> dual citizenship disqualifies a person from office because it sets up dual loyalties. And to me, this is the most convincing argument. There's a lot of other arguments out there that have merits and demerits. Uh, but this is a pretty good one. The British Nationality Act of 1948 gave Obama British citizenship. I don't think there's any question about that. Second, Kenyan law gave Obama Kenyan citizenship through his father, 1963, even if he was born in the United States, even if he was an American citizen. Both countries automatically conferred citizenship upon their children. It could be renounced later, but they had citizenship at that time. So Obama's father conferred foreign citizenship upon him. Now there's strong evidence that he may have had a third um, citizenship in Indonesia. And uh, there's so much debate on that, I'm not even going to get into it because it would require him having renounced, probably having renounced American citizenship. Let's just leave that alone. Let's just deal with what's clear. British citizen, he was a Kenyan citizen. Okay, those two, I think, are fairly clear. Now, that disqualifies him just like it disqualifies me from being president. I don't have anything against a candidate who's not qualified. I'm not qualified, and I'm not against me. So this is not a personal issue, okay? We're just saying let's live by the Constitution, and uh, we'll apply it later on to uh, Jesus Christ. Now, the next verse indicates that a solid track record of service to the country is a qualification for office as well. You don't just pop up out of nowhere. 
Okay, verse 2. And in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. Now, it was through such military um, service that David showed his qualifications to be the commander-in-chief. It was through such service he showed he had other qualifications like uh, wisdom, Deuteronomy 1, verse 13, ability, Exodus 18, 21, 25, and other, uh, other qualifications. All the way back in 1 Samuel 18, David was shown by God to be exemplary in his military service, his loyalty, his leadership abilities, and in his prowess. He had a track record. And during the next 30 years, you're going to have plenty of opportunity to be voting for people based on their track record. I care nothing for their promises. I want to see a track record. Politicians can promise you anything in the world. Forget about their promises. Look at the track record. I think uh, the application is pretty obvious, pretty easy. Point D gives another reason why they were asking David to be king. They said that God approved of his candidacy. Verse 2. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. I don't see voting as having any other goal than pleasing God and seeking to put into office the one that you think God would want to have in office. My goal is not to win uh, unless God's purpose is for us to win. My goal is to please God on how I vote. Now, on the other extreme, my goal is not to cast a protest vote unless the protest vote is pleasing to God. We cannot in good conscience criticize politicians for being unprincipled if we are unprincipled in our part of the political process, uh, which is voting. And before you stone me to death, uh, let me point out that I have said over and over again that the Bible gives flexibility on voting. It takes practical matters into consideration. And so you may come out in a different place than I come out in terms of who you would vote for, and that's okay, but this is one of many passages that calls us to try to the best of our ability to put the one into office that we believe God would want to have in there. And by the way, God does not, I mean, he sometimes approves people who were not perfect candidates. So we're not talking about perfect candidates. But if God would reject the candidate from being president as he eventually rejected Saul, we have no business electing him into office no matter how fearful we are of him not being in office, somebody else being in office, okay? Let me repeat that. If God would reject the candidate from being president or legislator or judge, we have no business electing him into office. I mean, just think of it. Why would we choose someone that we know for sure God would reject? To me, it's quite simple. The fifth interesting feature of this process of choosing a king was that a covenant was made before the Lord. Verse 3 says, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now we talked last week about this two-part covenant. I won't go in detail on it, but this was absolutely critical for justifying Huguenot resistance to tyrants in France, absolutely critical for justifying the Scottish resistance during the Reformation uh, to the tyranny of, of, of the British, and it was used again to justify the uh, resistance in America in 1776 to British, uh, to British tyranny. 
and I've put that chart from last week into your outlines again, the reform view of civil government sees not only a covenant between the citizens and the king, there is that covenant, but there is also a covenantal responsibility between the king and God and between the citizens and God. And so the king enforces God's laws against citizens who violate those laws, and the citizens, through their representatives, enforces God's laws against a king who violates those laws. Because God's laws in the equation, it's a two-way covenant. It's not simply between the king and, and the people. There are checks and balances. And the American War for Independence was perfectly justified as civil magistrates, the representatives of the people, resisting the tyranny of King George and actually of the parliament. Britain had broken the covenant. Now, in contrast to that left-hand chart, Rousseau and Robespierre threw God out of the equation and made the covenant between the rulers and the people. Okay, you think, oh, that's great. We've got a covenant between the rulers and the people. Well, the problem is the rulers make the rules and pretty soon the people who have put that ruler into government through a revolution have no recourse to his new tyranny that he has imposed. And so, again, you're going to get the kind of tyranny that happened through the French uh, Revolution. And this means that biblical civics cannot be merely pragmatic. Both rulers and ruled must take God into the equation. The election is a covenant that you are keeping before God. It's not just a covenant that the king is keeping before God. You need to see your vote as a part of a covenant with God. It helps to inform your voting. Now, the last half of verse 3 gives the simple point that David is anointed by the elders, not vice versa. He's coronated by the elders, not vice versa. It says, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, this, again, is a necessary implication of representational government. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious uh, that, um, that it's the, the people who have authority over the king. Now, let me just give you a little bit of history. During the Middle Ages, there was this back-and-fight gr- attempts for grabbing power between the church and the state. There were to- uh, the church wanted the supremacy, and the state wanted the supremacy, and there were times where the church official had the authority to put the crown on the king's head and there were other times where the king took the crown and he put it on his own head now that was symbolic of two top-down approaches to government both of which were power politics they were failing to see that the church and the state are separate jurisdictions now the biblical position says both are wrong We reject ecclesiocracy, where the church rules over the state, and we reject Erastianism, where the state rules over uh, the church. Did I say the first one right? Church over state, state over church. We reject both of those. Uh, Instead, the order implied in the last few points that we've gone through is the order given in the United States Constitution of Jesus, then the people, then the states, and then the federal government, which is the least of the governments. And the church is not in there. Now, that doesn't mean that pastors can't be involved in all three levels of government because a pastor is a citizen. He's not the church. A church is a government, right? That's a different thing than individuals of the church being part of the government. That's not ecclesiocracy. It's the same thing as Reverend John Witherspoon. He, he helped uh, with the... He was a signer of the Declaration. He was the guy that mentored them on what they should put into the Constitution. So there's no problem with individual pastors, but there must be governmental separation. Now, let me show you the order from the Constitution. 
Constitution ends Article 7 by dating the document not only in the 12th year of the nation. That's significant. Why? Because it means this is not year one. This is the nation was started with the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration of Independence clearly puts this nation under God. So it not only dates it in the 12th year of this nation, that's very significant, but it also dates it as in the year of our Lord. Our nation has a Lord. And that Lord is Jesus Christ. America was established as a Christocracy where Christ our Lord was the highest authority. Now, was it perfectly consistent uh, with that presupposition? Obviously not. Uh, but it was clearly stated to be a Christocracy. Now, who's next in line after Jesus our Lord? It's not the president, as some people might think. It's we, the people. Now, if we put we the people at the very top, we're going to end up with another form of tyranny. Though the Constitution begins with we the people, it ends with the declaration of Jesus as our Lord. In other words, Jesus is the Lord of we the people who wrote this document, okay? And uh, he's above we the people. Since Christ was indeed the Lord of we the people, which is an indisputable fact in 1776... The Constitution that we the people did ordain and establish in the preamble cannot be fighting against the Jesus Christ that's acknowledged in Article 7. You cannot pit the preamble against Article 7. You've got to dovetail the two together. So if it was indeed a secular revolution, as some people think, Gary North thinks that, why would they date it as the 12th year instead of year 1? If it was a... a, a a total revolution, this should be year one of a new nation. It was a total revolution. Why did they date it in the year of our Lord? Now, moving on, the Constitution also distinguishes between conventions of the people within the states and between the states. And if you study those phrases clearly, you'll see that our founders adopted a theory of government where the chain of command was Jesus our Lord, then people via the constitutions within the states, I mean con conventions within the states, States themselves, and then the federal government in that order. The federal government was the weakest of the governments, had no powers that were not explicitly given to it in the Constitution. And that's what went on in this passage. When the representatives of the people anointed David, they coronated David, it was an assertion that the people have greater authority than the king. That the king was a servant to the people. His power was derived from God through the people in their conventions, through the states or tribes in their case, to King David. Can you see that? That the, the order is clearly uh, in, in the Bible. And so even though this is a very short passage, it's a wonderful passage on civics. Now let's look quickly at the reign of David. Verse 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. Uh, he, his reign began at the age of 30, seven and a half years before. Now, there was no mention of the need for a person to be 30 years of age with regard to a king. It's implied, clearly stated with regard to a priest. It's implied with regard to elders. Uh, and at least maturity was implied in two mandates of a king in Deuteronomy 17. Now, our Constitution has raised the bar a little bit, says you've got to be 35 uh, which is a bit higher. But the issue of maturity, that's a key one in looking for a candidate. Now, of course, David reigned for 40 years. It meant that there were no term limits. To insist on term limits is to rob people of the right to select their representatives even if they want to elect corrupt 
representatives. That's their right if they want to be ruled by corrupt people. Term limits is a lazy way of getting rid of corrupt magistrates. There's always been an ability to get rid of magistrates. You can impeach them. You can vote them out of office. Okay, and we've already looked at Israel doing exactly that with Samuel's corrupt sons in 1 Samuel 8, but God gave no term limits and the original Constitution gave no term limits. That's something that was added on uh, later on. I don't think it's helpful. I think it's a shortcut to a more mature civic involvement. Both before and after the time of David, the people used their God-given right to ask civil rulers to step down from office. You've got to have backbone to do that. And if the magistrates, lower magistrates don't have the backbone, if the citizens don't have the backbone, they deserve the tyrant that they get. And by the way, it, is, it was not hard to get rid of a king in Israel or to get rid of another magistrate because government was so limited in the Bible that they could do it if they had the backbone to do it. The reason it's become so hard to get rid of scoundrels today is because of the enormous, enormous growth of governments become what older writers spoke of as Leviathan, okay? So no term limits. And then verse 5 indicates that David continued to rule at the discretion of the people through their representatives. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, it's not just giving dates. Obviously, it's giving dates, but it's not just doing that. It is also reminding us that David could not enter into office until the men of Judah voted him into office, even though God had ordained him, you know, set him apart to be a king years and years before that until the people actually voted him into office. He couldn't get into office. And then just because he's a king of Judah doesn't mean now he can grab the power in Israel. Remember the war was not started by David. It was a war of northern aggression. David was protecting himself and sometimes... Uh, well, we won't get into all that. that we, but anyway, it, it took seven and a half years before the delegates of Israel finally got their way. But rulership was always at the discretion of the people. Now, we've applied this passage to politics, but I think there is an application of this passage to Jesus that we have already hinted at. Now, let me first of all say that there is a real danger of reading Jesus back into every Old Testament passage, and the danger is that it's eisegesis instead of exegesis. If the Bible does not declare something to be a type or a symbol, we shouldn't declare it to be a type or a symbol. Now, in terms of kingship in general, sure, that generally points to Jesus. He's our prophet, priest, and king. So I want to be very careful what we do here, but I think the Bible has clearly laid out David as a type of Christ, and I find it very interesting that Jesus entered office at the age of 30, has no term limits, <laughs> praise God, no term limits, and he rules through his representatives in family, church, and state. And the cool thing is, they're not just God's representatives. They're, you know, these representatives in family, church, and state, there are representatives as well. Why? Because of that two-way covenant that God has established. Jesus enforces God's laws against citizens who violate them. That's Psalm 2. But the citizens enforce God's laws against Jesus when they put him on the cross. Why? Because he became sin for us. He bore as a substitute uh, our sins. Now, if he was only a king, we would have been in trouble. But Jesus was also a priest. He was a sacrifice who died on our behalf. And uh, he died to atone for our sins. And by our union with Jesus, Scripture says... Not only is Jesus our king, but he seated us with him in the heavenly places. 
And he has called us to be priests and kings who are reconciling the world to Christ and who are taking dominion. This is the original dominion mandate, who are taking dominion of this world as his representatives. What an awesome, awesome privilege that we have. Furthermore, Jesus is our representative to God and God's representative to us. He took on his office by becoming flesh and bones with us in the incarnation. Everything in the plan of salvation would be blown apart if we could not call him our elder brother. He also became our prophet, priest, and king because of his track record. And unlike the imperfect track record of David, remember we saw earthly candidates will never be perfect, so don't have a perfectionistic standard for them. But unlike the imperfect track record of David... Jesus had a perfect track record. And of course, though we choose Christ to be our king, it's ultimately God who has already chosen Jesus to be our king. He elected us before the foundation of the world. Though John the Baptist willingly baptized Jesus with water, it was only a symbol of the fact that God is the one who baptized Jesus with the Spirit. Psalm 110 presents the situation as God's choice coming first and then God making us volunteers in the day of his power. So even though I'm loath to force passages to point to Jesus if they don't clearly point to Jesus, Scripture over and over again calls Jesus the second David. David was a type or a foreshadowing of Christ's kingship over his people. And just as the people in that day rejoiced over David's kingship, I call you as a church to rejoice over Christ's rule over you. You know, Christ's rule does not bring misery. It's not inconsistent and arbitrary like uh, the rule of Abner and like the rule of Saul were. No, Jesus brings liberty. Why? Because he rules in terms of what James calls the perfect law of liberty. At his ascension, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. That means that the rallying cry of uh, our founding fathers and of people all across this nation in 1776 when they said we have no king but Jesus needs to be our rallying cry today as well. See, all kings are merely representatives of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one with absolute authority and absolute sovereignty. For any state to claim absolute sovereignty is blasphemy. Their sovereignty is a delegated sovereignty. They are servants of Christ. And any who claim absolute authority should be asked to step down from office. That's exactly what Psalm 2 uh, says. They must kiss the sun or watch out. That's exactly what it says, Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 says we can only rejoice in Christ's kingship as we have experienced his salvation. Psalm 110 does the same and links Jesus' priesthood and kingship. And we experience the joy of those passages by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting our lives unreservedly to Him. It's an unreserved signing of a, what's it called when you give up? Not a peace treaty, but a capitulation, whatever. (laughs) That's right, we capitulate to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's rejoice in Christ our King. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that uh, the early uh, people in America understood your word so much better and they were trying to formulate things. They didn't do it perfectly, just as we probably will not do it perfectly. But we pray for increasing wisdom into understanding your word and how it applies to every area of life. 
And give us joy as we do it. May we not be people with a, a sour expression and uh, who people think uh, have no joy, but may the joy of the Lord radiate from us even when we're in opposition to the tyranny and the things that are happening in this nation. Do bless us, your people, as a servants of the cross, as Rodney said, who are uh, patted on the back and sent out to work. And we thank you that when you send us forth, you also go with us and you give us the strength that we need. And so we play, pray that you would bless uh, our labors, multiply, just as you multiplied the loaves and the fishes, multiply the efforts of these people, leverage them so that we could have an influence far, far out of proportion to our numbers. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and our King. Amen.